Welcome to this episode of The Grill Podcast. My name is John King, and I am the host of the agronomy segment of our podcast. This month, as always, we're going to talk a little bit about a business update of what's happening in the fertilizer and chemical markets. Um, and then we're going to pivot a little bit to talk about what's happening in the field from an agronomy standpoint. I have Dan Bjorklund and Brad Sherwin, who are our technical agronomists on the team, to kind of talk about what we're seeing in the field. We're filming this on April 19th. There's a decent jag of corn in the ground. The weather overall this past weekend and this coming weekend don't look great. So we're going to talk a little bit about what everybody needs to be aware of, some ideas we've got on mitigating risk, because there's definitely going to be some of that that's going to come up. And then finally, toward the end, we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about our partnership with Talus Ag. So I think it was about a week or two ago, I sat down with the gentleman from Talus Ag, really looking at their uh, ability to bring green ammonia in a small scale to rural America to us and, and our partnership with them. So we're going to sit down and talk about that. Uh, to kind of finish up the segment. So as always, I'll kind of lead into what we're seeing from the overall fertilizer and chemical markets. For those that listened to the last podcast, I was pretty bearish overall on price direction on where it's going. Today, we've seen some situational prices increase just due with the short-term demand we're seeing. You know, when you look at what's happened the last few days, and we all know about it because, again, it's been wild since basically April 1, we decided we could spray Put on ammonia, do dry fertilizer, and plant corn all in the same week across the state. So it went from we didn't get much done ahead of time to we got to get everything done at once. So we saw some of the dry prices kind of tick up. Uh, urea rallied about $100 a ton. Phosphates rallied about $50 to $100 a ton, depending on the terminal. A lot of people had product in place, but again, the reason that it did rally was just to the fact that there were so many people that needed product, that were scared of the market, scared of carrying over. Um, that just didn't want to touch it. So they'd stayed away from the market. Um, the one thing that we did not see any price appreciation in throughout these past two weeks is ammonia. Ammonia has seen zero price appreciation, really only about pricing deceleration from the standpoint of really where they're looking at to set the market as we go to summer. In general, I would say if I'm a grower today and I'm looking forward to what I'm going to be doing for fall application of fertilizers, I'm going to be excited and I'm going to have a big surprise when I get that ammonia number for fall. Globally, ammonia is very long. There's been a ton of industrial demand killed globally due to high prices that we've come out of. And really with the the tapering uh, and, you know, really mild situation we've seen in Europe for the overall of their natural gas prices and with prices coming down. So overall, ammonia, probably the biggest surprise that was the last thing on earth that I thought would have been under price pressure was ammonia and it's by far got the most pressure. We're gonna find a floor this summer where that product is gonna, it's gonna find demand. We're gonna start up that industrial demand globally that we've seen kind of tail off. But until then, it's gonna be, it's gonna be finding footing. So I expect the manufacturers come out sometime in June wanting to find a home for ammonia. So by June or July, I expect, you know, all of us in retail will have some prices for fall ammonia. On the other side too, the the global market's really trying to shape out what the UAN market's going to be this summer. From a price per unit of nitrogen, it's probably not going to be nearly as competitive as what fall ammonia is going to look like. But you know, we're going to see Midwest prices that we're going to purchase here at Landis reset to call it 250 to 280 FOP terminals. Um, so you're going to see some pretty low numbers in the 300s for first kind of initial offerings on UAN. Again, doesn't sound as appealing as maybe $500 ammonia, but we're at least kind of heading in the right direction. Overall, in general, the outlook for the fertilizer market as we transition to summer is going to be very favorable for the farmer. I think it was literally April of last year when we kind of started having some of these conversations. I had Josh Linville on the show, and it was a very bleak picture that we were painting for all, all the growers across America on 
what prices we're going to do, how it looked. And it's good to sit here today and know that it's going to be much better situation we've, we're going to find ourselves into for overall fertilizer price is going to work out a lot better. Um, pivoting when you look at chemicals, and I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it because we're about ready to spend a lot of time on actually putting chemicals to the ground. When we look at prices on where they're going from overall direction on the major products, your glyphosate, your glufosinates, some of your other different products, you know, the, all those products are trending in the direction of lower prices come this summer as we reset and then for the next uh, chemical year when we look to planting 24's crop. Um, we've had major importers bring a lot of that product to the United States. Again, high prices cure high prices. We had the Chinese markets really ramp up on bringing product and producing product when we saw those prices really set a high last winter. And, you know, in true fashion, we found a way to really dial down those prices because of oversupply. So again, when I'm looking at the chemical prices, you know, the only thing I'm really concerned about if I'm a grower today is making sure I've got my premium fungicides or my fungicide plan in general really laid out with my local agronomist or my supplier. Those are the products that are gonna be the hardest to get. Uh, you know, we're seeing some of the generic uh, type fungicides really come off as well. There might be some of that prices that have an opportunity for you to take advantage of by the time you really go out to spray. But those are the big things as, as a grower that I'd be looking at today and be, you know, most mindful of. You know, really after that, you know, again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it here in April talking about what those, what the markets are doing, because at the end of the day, we're putting corn in the ground, right? That's what we're doing right now. We're putting corn in the ground. We're putting beans in the ground. So most of those decisions on the fertility side have been made. And we're, we're really transitioning to next year. So what I want to spend the majority of the time that we've got here today, this 30 minutes or so that we're going to talk about overall agronomy things is really talk about agronomy in action, what's happening in the field. And that's why I got these two uh, with me today. So I appreciate you guys joining me. And, you know, when I look at where we're at in the season, okay, we've had, we, what was it last week? Was it 70 degree weather, 80 degree weather? 80. Yeah. 80 I mean, degree weather. crazy, absolutely crazy. All week. Yep. So, you know, as a grower, I can see it too. What else do you want to do when it's 80 degrees in April other than get corn on the ground? You know, we went from 80 degrees on Thursday to like snowing like crazy on su Saturday, Sunday. Welcome to Iowa, right? So, I mean, really in your guys' opinion, there's a lot of people talking about the potential stresses that we're going to see due to the fact that there's corn on the ground, it's wet, weather coming after that, and it's not so warm. You know, what do you guys see that, is really, you know, first of mind and some things that people need to be thinking about if they've got corn on the ground. Well, I'll go first because I've got 43 years. Yep. And in 43 years, I can tell you one thing I've learned, the one thing that is reduce stress. Whatever you can do to reduce stress, because when you think about the yield potential that comes on a bag of corn, the guys of the corn warriors have proven it. Yep, four and five and six, seven hundred bushels, you know, um, uh, the records. And what reduces the corn during the growing season is stress. Our first stress of this year are soil temperatures that were 55 to 60 mm -hmm. when we planted last week to in the 40s now. Mm -hmm. And we're going into this next weekend with some nighttime temperatures dropping down into the 29, 28, 22 degree weather. So one of the things that I, I, I have some individuals show me some of their corn and uh, there's a there's a radical about a half an inch to an inch. That corn is just sitting there now. It's not accumulating any growing the degree uh, units with the kind of weather that we have now. So it's just sitting there and that little radical is absorbing fusariums 
and the organisms that cause crown rot. So the word for the week for the whole summer is going to be crown rot and what do we do about it? And Brad is going to explain how we fix crown rot. Crown rot is going to be one of those things we have to worry about because conditions are absolutely perfect. Allison Robertson was so excited on one of her Twitter feeds because she said they were putting in their corn plot and the next 10 days were going to be perfect for the development of crown rot. Now, she's a pathologist and she's trying to do her thing, but um, that. We're, we're under some stress, and uh, Brad, how do we fix this stress? Well, I wish there were a magic bullet to fix it, but in a lot of cases, once the corn's in, it's in. It's in. Yeah, we can't really go back and change anything. The seed treatments that we use today are very good. Not a lot of the um, early season stress-type diseases, the phycopathogens, like we see with fusarium and thractones type of things. Anything that's been planted early at this point, I think the key is to keep a close eye on it and... Even though we can't really eliminate any fusarium, for example, that we might see in a field that was planted early, be prepared to go in there with a fungicide application, perhaps at V5. This may be the year that that V5 application really pays. Right. And research indicates that it's really the strobilurin class of fungicides that, that carries the load and has the best efficacy on most of those pathogens. So you think about early planted corn, compacted soils, soils or fields that have fertility-related issues or have had corn-on-corn corn where you've got a propensity to have a higher disease pressure in there because of the fungal pathogens. Those are the ones that I keep a close eye on. By mitigating or putting a treatment out there today, early, at like B5, what you're really trying to do is mitigate potential standability and lodging issues later in the season because that's where it's really going really to show up. You may see as the season progresses, random plants that ghost or die out, you may see pockets of plants that ghost and, and basically die out. If you see any of those types of visible signs of a sick-looking corn plant, dig it up, and really important to dig the entire root up, split that stalk all the way down through the root mass so you can see that crown. Look mm -hmm. at that discoloration. That inner pith of that plant, when it's healthy, should be white. And if you see any kind of a brown discoloration, that's telling us we've got something else going on in there. It could be fusarium. It could be anthracnose. It's probably a combination. But right now, that's where we're focusing a lot of energy on is just bringing awareness to those fields that have been planted early this year. So you talked about the V5, and in my little beginning, I talked about reducing stress. So in a sense, you're trying to reduce stress on the plants that maybe aren't as affected and because we know the the population that we have, ending population, ears we harvest are really important. So that's one of the V5s. Um, we have, uh, we've talked about these high yield learning groups. And so we have 37 individuals that could potentially uh, participate. Is there any way to take some of those guys who planted early and just pay attention and maybe even run some V5 trials? Yeah, so fortunately, uh, John was gracious enough to bless us by buying a couple of spray drums. Yep. So we'll get some pictures. Anybody that made it to the connector, ours was the shiny brand new one <laughs> that hadn't been used yet. But um, we'll get some pictures of it and maybe the link to DGI. But I cannot wait to get these things out there on the field because I think it's truly going to be of where we're going in ag. You know, yes, there's planes and yes, whatever. But and maybe the drones aren't there yet. But 10 years from now, they're going to be there. They're going to find a way to make it work. Yeah, so I think the exciting thing we've got going here for us is, is this opportunity to work with these growers that have 
signed up and enrolled in our high yield learning group and they're active participants. And with the drones, we've got the ability now to come in and do some treatments, test some products, look at different timings and applications rates uh, in a real world field environment without taking undue time away from them or their equipment to make a test strip or like ride term. We can come in and do that. We don't really have to worry about the weather as much. If it's, you know, wet and muddy, we can still go out and make a timely application. So I think the benefit there is it's really going to give us the ability to generate a lot of really good information that's going to help all growers make better decisions. Yep. No, and I think the biggest thing too is when I when I think about it too is, you know, this year we've had, we had early planted corn, okay? We also had a huge issue getting dry insecticides, okay? So we think about it. Kevin's been emailing it about every day. Can't get Aztec brands. Can't get smart boxes. You know, they're having production issues. So when I look at it too is, you know, every brand new planter that John Deere makes has got a liquid unit already built onto it, right? And a lot of people continue to transition to high-speed planters. Even if you don't want to use starter, if it's already got that liquid unit on it, come talk to us because there's solutions that we think you can put in that liquid unit, whether it's a biological, whether um, there's a product we're trying out this year from UPL called Tempera Plus HD. It's fluoxystrobin and it's bifenthrin. Again, so it's a good way to get insecticide in furrow for rootworm, and it's a good way to get that strobilurium right there at the seed bed to help with crown rot, fusarium, other things like that. There's so many of these products that are coming out all the time that, you know, for Tepera Plus, you're probably looking at $12 to $13 an acre, but you're getting a fungicide application and an insecticide application right at seed so you can get that plant off into a really good start. So, I mean, I think those are the things that, you know, having the advantage of having you guys on staff and really looking at the agronomic side, we're really piecing together the product side of what what works, what's applicable, what's cost effective for people's acres. But um, it's funny. You know, I know we don't sell much, especially as Landis, or I don't see many guys running liquid and furrow starter much throughout Iowa. But if you've got that unit on there, there's plenty of other stuff you can do with it. I think that's the important thing. And a lot of the biologicals that keep coming forward, they all want to get in furrow, right? They want to be right there with that seed on the early stage. I think there's a lot of value to it, but you got to have the way to administer it. So, you know, John, um, we did a lot of videos uh, last year on YouTube, on the YouTube channel. Uh, we're, we're tying in the podcast to be able to do that. And one of the uh, areas we covered last year was this whole genetic thing. Yep. And I know we're not going to talk about pink silks and white silks and all that type of thing today. We already did that. You can check the YouTube channel to do that. But here is a very practical reason for why you do that. Yep. Because I bet everybody that's watching this or listening to this planted some of each of the different types of style of hybrids we've yep. talking about, whether they were from Bear, Corteva, Sergento, whatever it is. Some of those hybrids are very, very racehorse, high yielding, 270 to 300 when you really want to push out that yield. Some of them are more defensive and they have great late season plant health, which when you're trying to you know, minimize stress that we already have, late yep. season plant health might be a good thing because these fusariums really don't start, you know, deteriorating that stock until it's dead. Yep. And fungicide helps us that. But guys and yells, I, I, I just want you to think about what you've planted, go back and look at the data sheets and make sure you categorize, is this an offensive or is this a defensive? Because if I've got a bunch of offensive acres out on a hybrid, 
that would be the first one I'd want to do the V5 fungicide right. application on. Well, and the other thing I was going to kind of queue up a little bit. So last month we had Tyrannus on here, right? So we've been kind of promoting Tyrannus along with our high yield learning group. We're up to, I think, I looked at it the other day, we got 44,000 acres between Iowa and Illinois, Minnesota in uh, Tyrannus. So those that have it and that have acres in the ground, make sure that you call your local representative that you worked with on that, get your planning date in there, and make sure they're flying your acres accurately. Because the last thing you want to do is have the investment of Tyrannus, but not be able to get back that data that tells you what your stand count is. Because that's going to be the inherent value of having Tyrannus on board right now in a year like this, if you did plan early, is you're going to be able to get really good idea of what your stand counts are right from the beginning. So you're going to be able to make some of these decisions like, okay, I definitely have a problem where I've got low stand counts. What am I going to do? Do I need to make a, an investment on a replant? Do I need to look at some products that I'm really going to need to make sure I get all the yield out of the plants that I do have out of the ground? I mean, I think those are the things that we continue to go down the path of as, you know, and we're sitting here kind of right next door to the Innovation Connector right now to shoot the podcast. You know, those are, that's why we've brought these companies in to be a part of it is just the, the U.S. farmer gets bigger and more agile. You know, it's hard again, not to plant when it's 80 degrees out, but if you have these tools that you can use, you can make, you don't have to make educated decisions. You can make precise decisions on what you need to do. And I think you hit on up there, you know, we've got a very unique thing going on here with our farm bill research farm and the ability to look at multiple different not just hybrids, but companies and the, the background to the different genetics as Dan talked about. Now we've got the drone. Yep. You can come in and one of the projects we will have this year is going to be a tar spot trial. In that tar spot trial, we'll have multiple different hybrids, different companies, but we'll spray different products so we can actually get a sense of what the efficacy is. I think back to some of the other conversations and the meetings we were at, at earlier this winter. We talk about biostimulants in this biologicals market. And so a lot of what we're looking at this year are biostimulants. It's not the buck in a jug type of product, yep. but something that's actually more of a metabolite or chemical stability and shelf life. We're going to look at those first. Mm -hmm. And if you think about a lot of those products that we've talked to the different companies about, it's all about mitigating stress. So I think back to what we just talked about today early planted corn. It was nice and warm and dry. Now it's going to be cold and wet. Perfect environment for a lot of pathogens. So having some trials out there with not just our research farm, but with growers in a real world environment, I think is really going to be interesting this year to be able to really understand what products are working, which is hard. How do you apply it? It's really about trying to learn where is your target environment. Is right. the racehorse that you're going to plant early in a poorly drained field? That's where you're going to get the return on investment. When's the cutoff? Maybe as you get later in the season, you don't need to worry about that part of the, the equation. I think that's what's really going to be interesting. That's what makes us unique. I think yep. We can provide good, solid information, good, hard data that growers can use not to, to become a numbers nerd like me, but to really help make better decisions. And ultimately, it's about return on investment. Well, I, I, I wanted to put a plug in here um, for the high learning group set that, that we put together because we talked about this a year ago and we, we got it organized through the fall and we've got great signups. Yep. Um, yep. We do 30, some 37, uh, individuals somewhere around, uh, that, uh, we're going to be able to bring those individuals into Farmville and we're going to be able to look at things comprehensively. What's going on? What are the current events then? I think when you talk about the Landis way, that is what the Landis right. way is. It's very comprehensive. It's from planting to harvest, 
it's all the things that Brad is setting up um, with trials, um, uh, being able to test all these new uh, products that are coming out. And we haven't even mentioned the whole thing about fertility. Right. And Brad's done a great job. He is the expert uh, on fertility. When you think about nutritional stress of that plant, how does a plant with nutritional stress handle tar spot? Well, or even if you've got nutrient issues, if you've got crown rot, how do you feed that plant if you're if you're basically cut off at the legs? Yeah. That's exactly it. You know, when you get the crown rot, what happens a lot of times with the, with these early season diseases like just we talked about the fusarium, you get that crown infected in there with the disease, and what it does is it really cuts off the xylem, the flow of water and nutrients up in the plant. Late season, what you can see is a compromised stock quality, so you end up with lodging or plants that fall over. But more importantly, you're not going to get that carbohydrate build up in that seed. You're not going to have the dense kernel build up, and you're going to have light test weights. So that's really what happens. A lot of times we talk about uh, late season top dieback, where we see those plants start to die from the top down in late summer. That infection took place right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So... That's the idea behind the V5 application is try and mitigate that stress, improve or maintain as much of the vascular continuity that we can, and then hope for the best that we don't have continued cooling weather. Yep. Conditions. And really the, the outlook next week, when you start to look next week, it looks like we're starting to transition truly to spring, consistent weather. But, you know, one thing I would, you know, really, uh, you know, challenge everybody that's listening to us today or, or uh, watching us today is both Brad and Dan are going to be very involved in what's happening. And I'm calling it in-action agronomy in the field. Yep. Lots of videos, lots of stuff that's just happening all the time. And we're going to be trying to be as genuine as we can with what we're finding and what's happening in, throughout central Iowa, northern Iowa, southern Iowa. Um, take time, subscribe to our page, like our page, find a way to, to make sure that when we post up that you're finding it. Um, I know Brad, after we get done with this, he's going to actually do a little bit more technical review on crown rot, what it is, um, a little bit more deep diving. Make sure you watch it. We're going to put it in the show notes here. It's really good stuff. It's educational. Um, and that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring educational stuff that's applicable to what's happening in the season. And um, from an agronomy standpoint, that's we, we want everybody to be aware of what they should be looking out for and um, you know, and really taking advantage of, of, of the situation at hand. So. As always, guys, appreciate you joining me today on the show. And everybody, make sure that they take a little bit of a listen to what we have coming from Talos here from our past interview we had with them. So, you know, TBS has Charles Barkley and Shaq <laughs> and, and Kenny Smith. And you guys, you have John Blum and Rome. It's kind of like the dream team. It, it, re- it really is. And uh, we're going to be all over the field yep. uh, this summer. One thing I'd say is uh, we're going to be out at Farnamville in the plots here in the next few weeks. Um, we're going to post a little video kind of detailing what we actually have going in the plots as well. So look for that on our YouTube page as well as um, what's going to be up there. And stop by anytime, uh, reach out to these guys anytime to have them swing by if you want to learn about what we got going on up there. And um, again, we want it to be a great learning tool for everybody involved and appreciate your visit. I would say I would encourage you to reach out to your local account manager and ask when we're going to be at the plot because we're going to have some really innovative technologies we're going to be playing with. And if you don't have an account lead locally, call 515-800-GROW and we'll get you guys hooked up with either Dan and Brad and you can meet them out there. So again, appreciate everybody's business and have a safe spring. I've got uh, Tristan Pites from Talus with me today, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what Talus does, what industry they're in. Obviously, it's going to be a very uh, interesting subject for all of our listeners, especially from Iowa, considering their main point of business has to do with ammonia, and it happened to be in the 
the heart of ammonia country here in the, in the state of Iowa. So Tristan, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us and appreciate the partnership with your guys' company. So why don't you give us a little bit of background yourself and, and what you do for Talus? Sure. Well, thanks, John, for having me. We're, we're very excited to be working with Landis. You know, you're our launch customer. You have an exclusive throughout the Midwest on the green ammonia. So and we couldn't be uh, more grateful for your support. So uh, I'm uh, responsible for uh, U.S. business development at, uh, at Talus. Talus is a green ammonia company. So what that means is uh, we take air, water, and a large amount of power and manufacture anhydrous ammonia in a process that has no CO2 emissions, no waste, no wastewater. The system itself is modular and, mm -hmm. and containerized and you know takes about three to four months to manufacture, a month to ship, and a month to set up. The ammonia is, is it's chemically equivalent to uh, ammonia derived from natural gas. Obviously, the, the main difference is the CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. As a uh, natural gas derived ammonia, it's about four to eight tons yeah, and per for, unit. For those that don't quite understand it, you know, when you take our regular plants here in the United States that burn natural gas, you know, you basically are putting natural gas into a, a fire reformer, you're burning it, trying to take the hydrogen atom from it. And then a lot of cases you're venting the CO2. So from a carbon standpoint, um, that's where the carbon intensive score comes in on and hydrous ammonia is primarily around that, you know, you're venting a lot of that CO2 from your from your overall production. So when you look at what Talus is doing, it's more electrolysis based, if I'm right by saying yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're getting our hydrogen from uh water. Water. Yeah. Hydrolysis of water, that's what uses most of the power. The the process to manufacture ammonia is is the same. It's the Haber Bosch process. Yep. Um, which I actually read that. Book. Did you read the book? Yeah. Alchemy of Air. If you have, if you're listening, it's called the Alchemy of Air. Uh, look it up. Good book. And, you know, it's certainly a must read for anyone in the ammonia yep. industry. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, the gray ammonia is produced from natural gas, it, you know, releases CO2. Blue ammonia is another business model and they're just sequestering the CO2. Okay. And then green ammonia is, it's you know, hydrogen is produced from water, uses clean energy. And, you know, kind of explain a little bit, you know, obviously there's cost differences behind each production process. So um, gray ammonia, which is what we do a lot of here uh, today in the United States and globally, I mean, it's basically a global thing. That's the most cost competitive, but the most carbon intensive. Mm -hmm. uh, blue ammonia is probably what the, the second cheapest form. It's not, it's not cheaper than gray, but. Well, they're the added it's it's not cheaper than gray because they have the added cost of sequestering yep. the CO two. Yeah, whether or not they just pump it into the ground, it's a like salt cavern, or capture it and, and sell it. Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not sure what everyone's business model is, but you know, w with our process, you know, it it there are no emissions. Mm -hmm. The cost of production is well, you know it it really depends primarily on the cost of power. Power. Right. So there's there's sort of a you know, a range of, of power prices that we think would translate into ammonia price that is viable. Okay. So talk a little bit about and and I guess I'm gonna touch on it briefly is for those of you that maybe don't follow the space much on what green ammonia is, there's a lot of companies that have announced either their clean energy act, clean energy initiative, and a lot of it has to do with either blue or green ammonia. CF Industries, Nutrien, Coke, a lot of these companies are all that are domestic companies have come through with it. But Yara has probably been the one globally that's really pushed the heaviest toward green ammonia. Yara is uh, a Norwegian-based company that 
is probably one of the largest producers of nitrogen in the entire world. But, you know, they've looked heavily at this from the same standpoint of, you know, taking water and making ammonia from a green standpoint. You know, I would say most of the global initiatives around greenhouse emissions and overall climate change is really kind of why we're seeing the sudden shift to this. Would you agree? Yeah, that, that's a big component of it. The, I would say the other components are, you know, renewables are, yep. are, are getting cheaper, you know, in a lot of places they are at or below grid parity. Uh, so that, you know, that makes, makes it viable. And specifically in the U S in the inflation reduction act that was passed at the end of last year, there is uh, what's called a, a clean hydrogen production tax credit. Yep. So you know, we make hydrogen before we make ammonia. Uh, we qualify for this tax credit because we don't have any CO2 emissions in the process. And then we use clean energy where we connect to the grid and the grid's not entirely clean. We buy uh, RECs or renewable energy credits that also uh, can qualify for this uh, tax credit. Um, The full credit's worth about $500 a ton to us. And so on unsubsidized cost structure is somewhere between $700 and Mm -hmm. $1,000 per ton. So that $500 credit, you know, is a direct pass through to a customer and what, you know, it's, it's really what's driving our, um, our business development efforts in the U S. Well, and I think it's funny when we first met with you guys, you know, you, you said that a, the U S market was not really an identified market because of your overall cost structure and competitive nature of anhydrous production in the United States. I mean, for those listening, when you're thinking about, you know, $3, uh, an MMBTU for natural gas, you're talking $150 ammonia cost. I'm um, all in. So when you start to think about this tax credit being viable now, I mean, it basically went from the U.S. was not a market to now, oh my God, yeah. It's our it, most attractive market. It's it's yeah. the most attractive market today now all of a sudden. So I think it's just, you know, it's a unique uh, way of events that everything transpired. But maybe talk a little bit of, well, you know, where you guys were thinking about this, the original Talos design was going to fit prior to the subsidies. Sure. So the the company was sort of really spun out of, you know, f- foundational research that our CEO uh, was funding at uh, Stanford, Iowa, and Minnesota. Uh, he was working with some professors he knows at Stanford to micronize a green ammonia system. And the idea was that these could be connected with like solar power okay. yep. and deployed in developing in the developing world, Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, Asia. Uh, where fertilizer cost is much higher than it is in the U.S., it's, you know, at least two times as expensive. So they're you know they're paying almost two thousand dollars per unit of N, and you know same cost structure there, you know seven hundred two thousand dollars, and so you know unsubsidized in places like Kenya, mm-hmm. Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Chile, we can sell the ammonia and lower the consumer's cost by. Quite a lot of cases, more than half. Why, right. So the CEO, he spun the, spun the company out in late 2020, formed, formed the company, saw the, the potential for it, and they were really focused on business development in Africa. The first system uh, will be in service in Kenya sometime in the next month or two uh, with a Kenyan nut company, their world's largest academia. Okay. Nut, nut cool. grower. They're actually just talking about dragging an applicator bar through the trees. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're we're you know we're also trying to help them with um, 
application technique and technology. How do they do it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. How they basically create that. Yeah. Yeah. Equipment because they've, you know, they've never used it before. Yep. But it's a lot cheaper than urea. And these, most of these large farms are keeping nine months of urea on hand, mm. which they lose about 30% of that de degradation and theft. But I was to say, I mean, if you think about trying to store urea in the tropical jungles or whatever it is, uh, those that haven't had to handle it in a fertilizer facility, I don't like handling it for more than three months, let alone nine months. Yeah. And our weather is a lot more forgivable than theirs is. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a real issue. The supply chain is unreliable. It's costly. Yep. And they just can't take the risk of going without a uh, fertilizer. They've got multiple growing seasons in a year. So hmm. uh, this can be a real a solution to food insecurity in sub-Saharan Africa where it is it's definitely not as secure as what we would think, you know, and yeah, that's the funny thing, you know, we, we live in the United States, we have the most secure food system in the entire world. And, you know, what you guys are trying to solve is, is really unique because it, people are not that lucky in other places. So, you know, hats off to you guys for sure. So love to hear the origin story and it's been a fun partnership for, so far as well. And, you know, we're, we're not going to disclose everything we got going on as far as the location, but, you know, we're hoping to have something up and running by fall this year from the standpoint or. I believe fall or next spring, um, it really comes down to power. It, it, believe it or not, the limiting factor is power, sustainable yes. power, renewable yeah. power, um, not so much the ability to put up a plant. So we appreciate all your guys' partnerships. And for any of those that are listening or watching, feel free to give us a call at 515-800-GROW if you want to learn more about what we're doing with Talus or get connected with one of our members on the team or somebody from Talus to learn more about green ammonia. Thanks again for watching. Mm -hmm.